0: Well, good morning once again. My name is Brian. Our lead pastor, Steve, is on holidays with his family. Well-deserved holidays. Uh, But i warn you, when he comes back, he's going to hit the ground running. Um, It's been a good year sort of uh, assessing what we have and what we have to work with and all that kind of stuff. And when uh, Steve returns, we're going to go into a series on uh, Based on our, our, our mission statement, our values, and, and the direction we see the church going. So it's going to be exciting. Um, talk amongst yourselves. We are carrying on with the uh, summer study in the book of Proverbs, which is uh, a strange, a weird, a wonderful book. It's, it's really just a series of short quotes. It doesn't build any powerful message. It's all these little bumper sticker quotes that are great. I I enjoy Facebook, I have to admit. It's my way of keeping an eye on my grandchildren as they grow and my children as they age. But I also like the funny little things that show up every now and then. And there was a quote that popped up a couple times this week. It says, life is like a helicopter. I don't know how to operate a helicopter. But I get the idea, you know, you get this thing with the whirling and the noise. And the... What do you do with it? Life is like a helicopter. There's, there's crazy things going on. It can go all kinds of directions. You know it works, but you don't know how. What do we do? The book of Proverbs is like an operator's manual for that helicopter. It sort of goes through a lot of the little details that we weren't taught when we were first born. It talks about relationships and, 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 and work and, and families and, and just about everything is in there. And today we're going to focus on a topic that I hope makes you as uncomfortable as it does me, the idea of envy, because envy is so subtle in many ways that if we're not keeping an eye on it, it can sneak up pretty quick. Envy is like a pair of glasses that we wear that color everything we see, redefine everything we have. And if we're not careful, those glasses can get us into a lot of trouble. But ad- envy is an attitude. It's not an action. It's easy to say, don't do this. How do you say don't envy? Well, it's it's just part of our thinking. We're going to start with the verse that... Um, Andrew Ed us, Proverbs 14:30. And again, these are just a couple little verses we're going to look out throughout Proverbs. There's no big chunk on the topic, but this is pretty powerful. "A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot." A tranquil heart. Gives life to the flesh. Now, we've heard this kind of saying, the first half of that anyway, quite a bit in our culture because we're encouraged to relax. You know, there's, there's all kinds of people talking about the, the, the medical need to relax, to take a break, to, to meditate or, or go for a gentle walk or whatever it is you need to do, Pilates or, you know, take that time because your body needs it. Your mind needs a break. We need, medically and spiritually speaking, a tranquil heart. But look at how it's compared to. Envy makes the bones rot. Now, envy and desiring are actually one of the first things that God mentions. We go back to the Ten Commandments, the foundation of the covenant that God made with his people. It's in there. It's one of the biggies. We'll read it from Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. That's in the Ten Commandments. This is not something that God sneaks in later and he says, oh, by the way, this is part of the foundation. But the interesting thing about it is most other people don't know if you're doing it. This is a heart issue. This is a mind issue. In that list are other things like murder and adultery. This isn't one of those things that you go out and do. This is how you view everything. And part of envy is this covetousness, wishing. Oh, if I had what that, oh, if I, oh. And we have to be very careful. I want to bring this up right away because, folks, our culture is based on this. Our economy certainly is based on this, making people want what other people have. Advertising doesn't just give us information about the product. In fact, very often it gives us no information about the product. It just tells us how wonderful other people look who use the product. Wouldn't you like to be like them? Wouldn't you like to have what they have? And it's not a mistake. you know. Right now, I don't watch a whole lot of commercials. I like to fast-forward them on the PVR. But if you watch commercials, it's really interesting because these people that make them get billions of dollars for a 15- or 30-second spot. And their job is to know what's going to make you and me want that thing. It's interesting the triggers they find in us, the things that make us want to go out and get it, make us convince ourselves that we need that. Oh, we need that. You've got to be careful. Because advertising very often is based on envy and lack of contentment, lack of gratitude. You're nobody until you get one of these. This will solve your problems. You will be popular if you have one of these. So it's really part of our culture. It's a deep part of our culture and it's a dangerous part of our culture we have to be careful there's a strange statistic about how much we spend that we don't have and this this comes from a stats canada website it basically says for every dollar of disposable income we have we spend a dollar and 86 cents we are addicted to debt now debt isn't a bad thing necessarily you know we usually need it to buy a house or a car or you know we use it for various things but when we're using debt just to get stuff that we don't need what are we saying about ourselves we're hungry to possess what other people have and when it comes to the point where we're spending a dollar and 86 for every dollar we have we're going into debt simply out of envy Now, that may be simplifying a bit, but I want to shock you a bit with that idea. This is what StatsCan says the average Canadian does. And if you need it, it's a good thing to have. But how much of our debt is for things we don't really need? I want to clarify something, though. Envy is not the same as desire, very clear. It's not bad to desire something. God wants us to desire more. God wants us to want the good things. God wants us to wrestle with him for the good things. To pray like someone knocking on the door in the middle of the night. Lord, 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 Lord. Desiring something is not bad. Why we desire it, what we intend to do with it, is where we sometimes get in trouble. Let's look at James 4. Now, James likes to shake people up a bit. He, you know, his own history is the brother of Jesus who rejected Jesus until after the resurrection. He he, he doesn't like letting people get away with much at all. He's really harsh. And he describes it this way. Now, remember, this is written to Christians of Jewish background. But he says this. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, it's not his fault you're fighting him. You're fighting him because of what's going on in here. Your passions within you. Your desire you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Now, that's pretty extreme, but he is talking to believers here. You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Do you fight and murder somebody to get what they have? Or, or just ask the right person in the right way? But carrying on, he says, you ask, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever makes wishes to be... a who, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is very black and white. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I just want to stop on that phrase that was in the middle there. You don't have because you do not ask. James is not saying you shouldn't want and you shouldn't ask. James is saying that you're wanting and you're asking reveals something about your heart. What do you want? Why do you ask for it? God wants us to ask. The Bible is full of great stories of people that God just let them squirm a bit until they would go to him and say, I need this. And he said, I know, let's get to work. In fact, we know we need to be asking more. One of the things that is, is exciting that's getting on track is a, is a deeper prayer ministry here at the church. We have a prayer meeting for an hour before the service every Sunday. It's in a small room back there. Some faithful sisters get there and gather. It would be nice if that room wasn't big enough. We have prayer teams that come forward every Sunday, and they will again today. But I, I want you to realize something. When the prayer team comes forward, it's not like an altar call. We're not going to sing just as I am. and it, it, you, you don't come forward just to respond to something that convicted you in the message. It's just a prayer time. And they will pray with you about anything. They will help you ask the Father for the right things in the right way. Someone in your family is sick. Maybe you're sick. You're praying for the salvation of a loved one. You're struggling with work. Whatever it is you want to ask God, that's why these people are here. They're just here to help you ask. Ask to pray with you, to pray for you. And they love, love to be part of your story. That's what the prayer teams are for at the end of the service. You do not have because you do not ask. So let's look back at Proverbs 1430 again. Now as we go through, we're going to ask ourselves three questions. We'll tie this together. though. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones raw. So the first question is this. Do we define ourselves and others by stuff? Is that me? By stuff. Do I think I am the person I am because I have these things and I will be a better person once I get these things? Do we define ourselves and others by stuff? Okay, let's go to another Proverb. Proverbs 23:17. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. And that idea of fearing the Lord has been discussed a lot and and debated and stuff. If you struggle with the word fear, it doesn't mean to be afraid of God. It means to be in awe of God. It means to be amazed. And if you're not amazed, go back into Scripture and find out why you can be amazed, the God who deserves to be amazed. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Paul's got an interesting comment in Galatians. Again, it's written to Christians, so let's keep that in mind. In Galatians 6, 9, he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. These are people that are walking with God, people that are saved, people that live in the Spirit. But notice the warning. Paul writes this because it's possible to do this. Don't grow weary of doing good. If we don't give up, don't give up. There's times when we struggle. And we look at people that aren't struggling in the spirit with God and we think, oh, life would be so easy. Now, I don't think we all go through this. I think it has to do with our temperament and a lot of other things. But there's a lot of us that get to the point where we feel, "This is, is this fight worth it? I'm battling sin and I'm battling this and I'm battling that. Man. Do I have to keep doing the right thing every time? It's exhausting. Remember the Matrix? It's not a spoiler alert. I think if you've wanted to see it, you've probably seen it by now. But Neo is a character in the first part of the movie. He looks like a normal character in a normal world. Until things start to look really strange. And he starts to realize his life is very strange. And then you find out. Well, He doesn't know yet. But there's this one point where he comes to meet Morpheus, this wise old guy. And Morpheus has two pills for him, a red one and a blue one. And he says, if you take the blue pill, the story ends. All the weird stuff will stop. Your life will be normal. Your life will be as you expect it. How relaxing. You can just stop and enjoy life. But he says, if you take the red pill, you stay in wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In other words, if you take the red pill, everything else is gonna fall apart. You're gonna find out what's really going on in this world. And the thing that he needed to find out was the fact that he was actually living in a dream. This computer program that was designed by these machines in order to keep the humans content in their little bubbles so they could use them for energy. But you see, it's hard to know those things. It's hard, it it ended up being a, a, a fight, literally. He went through a lot of hard times because he found out who he really was. It would have been a lot easier if he had taken the other pill and he went back to being oblivious. He could have just had a happy life in that little dream world. There are times, I think at least for some of us, when we wonder, is this spiritual life worth the fight? And we look at other people who just don't care and we think, oh, that would be so easy if I didn't have to think about everything I do in terms of the word of God, if I didn't have to worry about how I spend my money, if I didn't have to worry what I look like when I go, wouldn't it be easy to just live in a dream? Just do what you want. Do what feels good. Do everything the commercials tell you to do. Instead of this daily struggle between good and evil. I think that's where some of us are at with choosing the pill and and, and once we accept the love of God we're, we're amazed by the love of God and the power of God and, and the goals of God for our lives that is wonderful and then we realize wait a minute this means that there's going to be messy for a while I've entered a war this is a battle zone between God and his enemies and we fight and we struggle and don't expect not to, because everyone in Scripture who followed God ended up in some kind of conflict that was costly and sometimes cost them their lives. Oh. So we are warned, Proverbs twenty-three seventeen: let not your heart envy sinners. Don't think, oh, it would be so much easier if I just didn't care. Continue in the fear of in awe and amazement of the Lord all the day. Question number two: Do we define ourselves and others by freedom? Free to do this, free to do that, don't have a worry in the world. Spend your money however you want to, treat people however you want to. Oh. Freedom. The next one we're gonna jump in here is Proverbs 31:32. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Again, this is a, this is a, a really interesting discussion of our culture. We are an angry culture. You only have to spend three minutes on Facebook to find that out. You will try to prove everybody else wrong and show how stupid other people are. I love the sites that show you where someone made a mean comment and then someone else came up and just wiped them off with it. <laughs> well, maybe I shouldn't enjoy that so much. But, but that's what we do. We, we do you know, when it comes to politics, and I, this is thin ice, I know, but politics, what's our most important thing? Knowing how bad they are. We love being able to tell people how bad the government is. We love having one more fact that they didn't have. Oh, yeah, but do you know he did this? We find great pleasure in this sense of anger, this sense of hatred, this sense of emotional and spiritual violence that we pour out. Some of our heroes are the most sarcastic people. Don't envy a man of violence. Do not choose All of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. I love that last little phrase, the upright are in his confidence. So I've thrown up different, the way that phrase appears to us in different translations, because translators, you know, they they try to capture the thing, but they realize, well, it means this and this, but I can only choose one. This is different ways that translators, these these language scholars, have given us that last phrase. Again, the one we read, the ESV, is the upright are in his confidence, in God's confidence. I love that idea. But the flip side is, if you are angry, and if you're always complaining, and if you're always seeing what's wrong with other people, you're not in God's confidence, he can't tell you what he thinks because you're going to use it the wrong way. Maybe he wants you to pray for that person who's struggling with certain doctrine, but you'd rather just wipe it in their face. He's not going to take you into his confidence. Maybe you want to pray for that person who's had some family problems, but it's more important for you to tell other people about it. God's not going to take you into his confidence and show you what's really going on there if you're going to use it in that kind of violence. So the ESV says the upright are in his confidence. The old American standard says his friendship is with the upright. And again, this is contrast to the people of anger and violence. The King James, his secret is with the righteous. Do you want to know God's secret? You don't know God's secrets if if, if we're just buying into this idea of tearing everyone else down. New American Standard, but he is intimate with the upright. The NIV, he takes the upright into his confidence, And the old Wycliffe, remember this guy died in order to put scriptures in English? I like reading his stuff sometimes. It's a little bit rusty, yes, but remember where this guy came from? Wycliffe, he says, The Lord speaketh to those who be honest or have integrity. That's a pretty good list of things to think of our life. Do you want to be in God's confidence? Do you want to be God's friend? Do you want to know God's secrets? Do you want to be intimate with God? Do you want to have his confidence? Do you want to, you know, be honest and have integrity? Then what Proverbs is telling us, then you can't be the person who loves to tear people down. You can't be the one on Facebook that adds one more punch. You have to be the one on Facebook that lifts people up. You can't be the one, you know, who's looking around church to find, oh, my, he's wearing that. No, no, no. You have to be the one that says, I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to befriend that person. They're having a hard time. They need friends. I'm going to be that person. James, again, let's go back to James, our black and white hero here. James 1.20, he's, very simply he says, The anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. There's a bumper sticker. The anger of man, and again, this is, this is humanity. This is the way the term was used. All people, male and female, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And yet we are so subtly tempted to be angry at people who believe the wrong thing, angry at people who, who conduct church the different way, angry at people who use that kind of music or those kind of instruments, angry at people who do this on Sunday or don't do this on Sunday, or maybe they do it on Saturday. Any time that anger motivates our thoughts... We're wrong. We're not a friend of God, intimate with God. We don't know God's secrets. We are not bringing forth the righteousness of God. Let's go back to it then again. Proverbs 3:31, 32. Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord. But the upright are in his confidence. How do you see the world? Is the world a series of problems to be solved and you're going to get out there and fix it? Well, you won't be doing it with God. So the third question is, do we define ourselves and others by anger? Our determination to prove other people wrong? I want to jump a little bit. Here to Matthew, something Jesus says about the kingdom. Because really what we're talking about through these three questions is do we want to live in the kingdom or not? The glasses that we put on, are they going to lead us to truth or are they going to trip us up? And Jesus puts the kingdom this way. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It's kind of interesting, it's, it's you know, I've, I've never done pearl shopping, so it's a little bit hard for me to grasp totally, but what I can compare it to is baseball cards. Sorry. There have been times, you know, when people have really gotten into baseball cards, and sometimes they're worth a lot of money. And then sometimes people get bored and they're not worth so much. But when you get into it, it's, it's a funny little world. The people that take it seriously, they buy all kinds of cards, baseball, hockey, all the sports, because they're looking for that one that's worth so much more. They buy the box, they open up all the little packs, and they hope to find that one rookie card or that one special card. And then they've got this box full of cards they don't really want. So, you know, they they trade them, give them away, give them to kids in the hospital. Maybe they sell them, you know, make a hundred little baggies. One of them has an expensive card in it, the rest are duds and they put that on the table at the trade show, and you, you can buy one and take a risk. Maybe you'll get that Wayne Gretzky rookie card. Maybe not. And they go around, and they check what other people have, and, you know, they realize, oh, you've got two of those. Well, I'll give you a couple of these for one of those, and then we'll each have one, and, you know, because I, I want to have all these different cards. I want to make my sets complete. I want to have all the rookie cards from that year. There are certain goals in having a variety of cards, and it shows that you're serious about the activity. So they go to these shows They I'm set up in the mall and they're, they're trading the cards. They've got magazines that give them the average prices of what they're being sold for these days. And if you've got your collection from when you were a kid and you take it in to try to sell it, to pay off the house, you know, they'll give you maybe 5% of what the magazine says they're all worth. You know, they're cautious about it. But you know what? There's this other card, a Honus Wagner card. Now, Honus Wagner was a good baseball player, but the real thing about this card is it came, you know, now when you buy cards, they're just in a pack. When I was a kid, when you bought them, there was gum, the absolute worst gum in the world. It tastes like dead rubber, but we would chew it anyway. I, I, I don't know what that was made of. It really scares me to think of that. But sometimes you get cards with other things, and, and a series of cards came out back in the days of Honus Wagner that were in a tobacco, from a tobacco company, so they were in cigarettes, and, and the main story, although people debate it, the main story is Honus Wagner didn't want kids buying tobacco just to get his card, so he made them stop including his card in there. And so right now there's no, less than 50 on the planet that are known, and so they are rare. Again, it's not because they're pretty. It's just because they're rare. In other words, there's a lot of other people that want it. In fact, the last time one was sold it went for $7.25 million for a little piece of cardboard. 7.25 million for one card. Imagine these traders. They got a truck full of cards they don't really want, they've got a 20 or 30 cards they really want and a couple more, and they come across a Honus Wagner and a guy's willing to trade. You, you, you take all your cards, there's no there's comparison. All of your cards, you'll trade that. And the house, here's the keys to the house. You, you trade whatever that person wants to get that one card. But something happens when you own that Honus Wagner card. You stop being a collector, you stop being a trader. You're no longer interested in trading cards. In fact, you don't care what everybody else has because you've got Honus Wagner. You may remember Wayne Gretzky when he owned uh, the Argonauts there for a little while. He, he went in with a partner to buy one of the Honda's fighter cars. That's how rare and, and, and the kind of people that want to own them. You'll give up everything to have that card. But once you have that card, you're done trading. There's no more negotiating. This is no longer a business. This is who you are. Jesus said the merchant who was trading in all kinds of jewels and pearls and and precious and semi-precious stones, came across this pearl that was absolutely perfect. And he was willing to give up everything he had to get that one pearl. But notice, he gave up everything else. He stopped being a trader of gemstones. He stopped being a merchant. Now he's known as having one thing. And Jesus says, this is the story of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not something that we interact with as we interact with businesses and, and, and our culture and our, and our government. Yeah, I'm gonna do this for God. I'm gonna do this for the government. I'm gonna pay. Yeah, I'm gonna, you know, some days I feel more religious. Some days I feel more interested in sports. You don't have anything then. But once you find the kingdom and you decide that's the one thing that I want. It simply means you're no longer in business of all those other things. You've chosen one thing to define you, and it changes your activity, and it changes your your whole self-concept, and it changes the way other people see you. The kingdom of God. How do we encounter this kingdom of God? We first encountered it At the cross, because the kingdom of God is fully explained through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a sinless one who died in order to be the sin sacrifice for any who accept it. And although scripture is full of a lot of amazing things that God does for people, we get to know God best in that moment in which He was willing to lay down His life. And when we understand that pearl of great price, when we understand the significance of that, then trading and all those other things the world has to offer is really not worth it. We we can't say, I'm 100% sold out to Jesus and 100% sold out to this and 100% sold out to We can't do that. Because once we encounter the kingdom, we realize the kingdom is a very personal thing. It's designed for me. It's where God wants to meet me. And I can't just include it with everything else in my life. It's either all or one. The cross is where we encounter the kingdom. It's where we enter the kingdom when we say, yes, God, I recognize everything that you say that all of the corruption is bad. I'm not going to bring parts of it with me. All of corruption is bad. And I am part of the problem, and I need to be changed, and only you can change me. And you can only change me when I fully see your face, your love, your patience, your mercy, your grace. It's at the cross that we encounter the kingdom, it's at the cross that we enter the kingdom, and it's at the cross that we experience the kingdom daily, where our constant awareness is that we are loved by God. Our every thought is filtered through the idea that we're loved by God. We've taken off those glasses of envy that says the entire world is there to serve me and we put on the glasses of the kingdom which says the entire world is here to serve God and I'm part of it. And we've cashed in all the other jewels to find that one pearl and we've given up all our other cards to get Honus Wagner. And we are changed by it because we're no longer in the business of cards and jewels. We are now dedicated to one thing. We want one thing. But in order to understand and embrace it, we have to give up those other things. We have to give up defining ourselves by our stuff. We have to give up being jealous of sinners who don't have to worry about all the religious stuff we get to go through. We have to give up the attitude of anger, sarcasm, bitterness that permeates our world. And we embrace God. There's a there's a, a, a British preacher years ago named John Stott, and because he was a preacher and a writer, so they would offer and entertain various people in their house. And I remember hearing his wife used to get very anxious. They had nice china things, and when these people came in, some of them were also classy British people, and sometimes they were Canadians, and they're, hey, how you doing, bro? And she would worry about all this stuff that could get broken till one day she went through the entire house and she gave every single item to God. God, this is your teacup. God, this is your plate. God, this is your this. And she said once she gave it, literally gave everything to God, she was living in a different world. When people came in, she she was no longer worried about things breaking. She could just freely do what she wanted to do, which was love them and embrace them and encourage them. She was free to do those things, because she took off those glasses of envy that defined everything that she owned, and she was finally free. She gave up, and she was looking on that one thing, the love of God in her life. How do we do that? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to look at? Like, Mrs. Stott, go through your house and say, that's yours, and that's yours, and that's yours, and that's yours. My house is yours. My car is yours. My kids are yours. My skills are yours. My pain is yours, my sickness is yours. How does that change the way we view the world? We take off this, these glasses of envy and we, we, we put on the glasses of God's love and it reinterprets everything. And this big, ugly helicopter that was crazy in our backyard finally doesn't seem so scary because all you have to do is push a couple little buttons All you have to do is take a little bit of control and this amazing monster will do exactly what you want it to do. Once you know how to operate it. It's not that big a deal. But you have to learn to do it the right way. Envy keeps the world scary. Envy keeps us confused. Envy keeps us frustrated. Envy keeps us angry. Love sets us free. This morning we celebrate communion. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We celebrate communion as a celebration of that moment on the cross. The significance of God's gift to us. The thing that defines our every thought and every day and every moment. Our every possession and our every relationship. And we celebrate this morning out of gratitude. Because it's the one thing. It's the pearl of great price. It's the Honus Wagner. It's the one thing that will change you if you let it. I just want you to take the element. Now, it's if you remember, I have trouble with these things too. But the top part is just a little cellophane thing. You peel it off and then there's the wafer there, the bread. And then the main plastic thing, you peel it off and you have the crushed grape underneath. We're going to do it in a minute. I just want you to hold it. If you don't have one, go and grab one. And I just want you to think about your walk. And where elements of envy may have infiltrated. Where they may have started to rot away the joy of the Lord. The joy of your salvation. Allow God to show you things where he wants to set you free. As we wait and we sing a little things, Michaela has a new song for us. It's probably new to many of you. It's a beautiful song about communion. And the worship team is going to sing through the first portion of that song. We're just going to listen to that for a bit. Then after that, we will take communion together. And we will then sing the whole song. It's a beautiful song. Before we do that, let's just pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity we have to remember the cross to remember the the Messiah who gave himself up for his bride so that our lives can be changed and we can live in the kingdom of God